Hello, everyone, and welcome to a brand new episode of Black Brew. I'm Aaron. And I'm Joshua. And we're your co-hosts. Today, we've got some steamy, hot topics for you. Before we begin, please give us a follow on our Instagram at Black Brew Podcast. Our social media manager is always doing some kind of online engagement with our users. It's March, so it's Women's History Month. So right now, we're doing a Woman of the Week where we highlight some amazing women. So be sure to check that out. Also, be sure to check out our Instagram stories. They have fun little quizzes and polls for you to engage with. And as always, feel free to use our link tree to come and be a guest on our podcast. Also, be sure to give us a rating and review on whatever platform you're listening to. And be sure to share your, this podcast with your family, your friends, and your coworkers. So, topics. First, we're going to be talking about Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson, Joe Biden's nomination as an Associate Justice for the Supreme Court of the United States. Later, we're going to be analyzing a New York Times opinion piece published recently about students and self-censorship. It has taken academia by the throat. So we've got a Black queer perspective. But first, Josh. Yes. <laughs> Let's get into some political tea. Shall we? Okay. Katanji Brown Jackson. Mm-hmm. How do you feel about her? So I'm going to be honest. Um, one, just for everyone to know, Aaron's changed the topics like twice this week. No, so wait, a, no wait a minute. No, wait a minute. So, no. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I was know. not able. Uh-uh, uh-uh. To research this, because I couldn't remember which one was which. No, don't. Um, I changed it one time. Okay, that's one time too many for Joshua. Um, <laughs> so I couldn't remember if this is going to be Kim K, who the hell we talk about. Um, now, the little bit I've heard, like, yes, I guess there's some brownie points. It's a woman, it's a black woman. Um, but I, I can't remember the exact points, but I heard that there's some problematic things that follow with her. Mm. Maybe you know more about that. Well, I guess, like, so I am coming to this conversation because I feel like we've seen a lot of, like, the media tr- uh, coming together on, like, right and left sides saying that this is, like, an appropriate judge to nominate to the Supreme Court. Of course, we'll have to see what her like confirmation hearing is like with like the uh and whether or not the Senate actually like votes her in. But it seems like bipartisan-wise, people seem to be on board with her. Of course, there are some people who seem to think that she is like supremely like unqualified for some reason. Tucker Carlson was how was talking about her a couple of days ago, asking for her uh LSAT scores as if that determines whether or not she's qualified to be a Supreme Court judge because she has a whole bunch of experience credentials. And of course, it just kind of played into that whole, um, that whole the racist dog whistle where we delegitimize Black women's credentials and their knowledge. No one asked for the credentials of that one one woman that was problematic that they put Amy on there. Amy Barrett. Yes. And I'm over here like, you didn't do her like that. Mm. 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 I love it. Tell me you're racist. Tell me you're racist. 
Well, I mean, for people who don't know, like she has a bachelor's degree in government, which is political science, from Harvard University. She graduated magna cum laude, and then she got from what university? Harvard. Oh, Harvard. Oh, I thought you said Auburn. I was like Auburn. No, (laughs) no. Uh, I was like, that's left wing. And she then she got her Juris Doctor, her JD from Harvard Law School, and she was also an editor of the Harvard Law Review, and then she was a judicial clerk. For Judge Stephen Breyer, the one who's retiring, who she's replacing. So she She's just following in his footsteps at that point. Yeah. I mean, she and she worked as a public defender, and she will be the first person on the Supreme Court who has like been a public defender, which is very groundbreaking because being a public defender That means like she's fought for the community's rights, right? Yeah. In a court case. Yeah. Uh, you think that would be the first thing we look for in a person? yeah now i think what you are probably referring to is the the um people talking about her being endorsed by the paternal order of police yes it was something police related Mm -hmm. and i was like of course yeah i mean should we expect much from people who work in the judicial system that created <laughs> no created all that no we shouldn't so like even though it's great that she's there and all she's still one of them i mean yeah because if we think about the whole criminal justice system it's just like holistically like it involves the courtrooms it involves the judges the lawyers the attorneys it involves the police it involves the prisons it involves all they're all like collectively working together to disenfranchise and further oppress us so what so we're I, really just begging for the best out of the Aldrew Lord. Audrey Lord said this is a this is a major misquote of Audrey Lord, but she said, and I'm paraphrasing, I actually paraphrasing what she said, you cannot tear down the master's house with the master's tools. Period. You can't. But he Joe Biden had like Joe Biden had to like nominate a black woman because that was like what he promised, like if in his campaign, so oh, he'll he'll give us that, but he won't give us student debt. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. <laughs> well, this is so like, and this is not to like discount or delegitimize her like her qualifications, but like it's a lot easier to like just like nominate a black person to the Supreme Court than to like actually like cancel Thanks the fundamentals of our society. Yeah, I mean it's it's very like you know um performative performative yes so i mean i bet he i bet he feels pretty fucking good <laughs> yes yeah, so, look i got another black person on my team okay okay biden so here you are still letting trans teens um get their families ripped at, uh, ripped apart because they identify as trans in school oh but we'll talk about that for another podcast oh <laughs> How do you think she's gonna work out on the court? Like, I like I'm just trying to like I I really do hate that we don't have like access to like the Supreme Court like when they have like their deliberations because I am truly wondering what like their deliberations will be like with her on the court with not only Amy Coney Bear but also Brett Kavanaugh. Probably very heated. Our justice court soon to reflect how our society looks. <laughs> on the outside 
<laughs> we we should not be surprised about what outcome we get. Yeah. Um, which kind of this is going to echo into our next topic, probably most definitely. Um, it's we live in a hard time, Aaron, where views are so polarized, and this is I, I'm not going to say it's an equal game. The left is not so radically far left, like the right is so radically far right. It just looks that far away, you know. Anything could look like it's pretty far away when you're on the edge of the world, mm-hmm. and that's kind of where we're at politically. So uh, I can it our entire legal system probably looks like a giant battlefield verbally. I'm just glad that we got another person in that has at least somewhat of the interests of normal people on her mind. Which, from what I can see with court, the court cases, even the conservative Supreme Court people, for the most part, tend to be a, supposedly a little bit more grounded than the rest of the politicians. And I wonder really? if, like, it, it just, when anything comes up about them, it doesn't always feel like when they're, like, explaining their choices, it doesn't feel like they're so far away from the common person. And I wonder if it's because of their job specifically prior to that position, they had to work with the public to get up to where they are. Like they had to start at those lower, real rough looking courts and work their way on up. Mm. So they have a little bit more on the ground experience. Yeah. I don't know. I feel like when I, because I'm thinking about a lot of the Supreme Court justices, I'm thinking of Clarence Thomas. And his, like, first of all, his, like, whole, like, confirmation process is just, was just, like, a nightmare um, and just really echoes, like, issues of, like, intersectionality because he was accused of sexual harassment by Anita Hill. Really? Oh, oh, honey. Let, let me go into detail. About maybe that. I'm just out of touch with the Supreme Court. <laughs> maybe, maybe, you know. Oh. Anita Hill used to work under uh, Clarence Thomas. And similar to how like, Dr. Uh, and Anita Hill is a doctor. She's a professor. But do you remember when, uh, uh, what was her name? I, Dr. Ford came forth and was talking about how she had been raped by Brett Kavanaugh. Yes. So the same thing happened with Clarence Thomas, the first, the second black person on the Supreme Court after Thurgood Marshall. He replaced Thurgood Marshall. So he he was in a confirmation process, and then Anita Hill came forward talking about her like sexual harassment experience, right, and how like what he had done to her. And this is why like people, this is why uh, Joe Biden was like when he was like running for office, this was like a place of contention because like people were telling him about this. Um, this uh because he was on the uh the senate committee that was hearing those like uh the, those hearings that he like about anita, anita hill right and he mm-hmm. voted um she like still he voted in favor of clarence thomas um i think so clarence thomas the words that i remember him saying i say remember as if i was there but the words that he said that i have read <laughs> in like political like articles and books and stuff was that he said that this was a a high tech lynching of a black man, 
and so it really does I kind of echo like these is that a white man's place to say I really feel like that should be a black person's the high like, if it was just a, I, I don't Paris Thomas is black I, I, no, I thought it was you said it was Biden that was saying that no, no, he was on the committee hearing this stuff when... Okay, was, okay. But Clarence Thomas, like, he said it was a high-tech lynching. Okay, okay. So that makes more sense to me, because I'm like, something about this just tells me it's not a white person's place to make allusions to, like, our generational trauma like that. But if it's another black man saying it, that, I mean, it's probably absolutely wrong, but... Well, it is. I more comfortable. He tried to play into the fact that, like, to hit, like, he, like... He like literally tried to play like the race card and because he was like, I'm a black man. They're attacking me because I'm a black man. Like, like that's how he saw. That's disgusting. So like not taking into account that like this was an issue like a gender, like oppression, but also the fact that like Anita Hill is a black woman. She's also a black woman. So (laughs) there's that. But he can't play that card. He also, I think his like kind of like judicial philosophy, legal philosophy kind of adheres to a I think it's called originalism and uh, originalism. And so does Amy Coney Barrett and Brett Kavanaugh. So they interpret the constitution as like, as the, like they look at it as like the original intention of the, like the founders who wrote the constitution and not trying to interpret it for like a contemporary world. So like what is actually- it's disgusting. So, that, so that's, and I'm thinking to myself like that, that feels pretty fucking right to me because like right as in like right leaning to me, because what you're saying is that I'm not gonna even take into context that we no longer live in a world where we have slavery. We no longer live in a world where we, we have all of this like huge technological advances. We have social, they did not predict social media. They did not predict the end of slavery. Like they didn't predict half the shit that we have now. And it just seems so bogus to me. That outdated. Was, yeah. So that's why I like, that's how I feel about the Supreme Court because I'm like, uh, how can you not, like, how can you be an original? So I can explain where that comes from because you got to keep in mind the, there are connecting lines. You know, we, we talk about those um, interconnecting identities. So with conservatives, what else do you typically get with that identity? You get fundamentalist Christian identity, okay? So the streamlined beliefs in a lot of fundamentalist Christianity is not the same as the progressive Christianity. Where progressive Christianity looks at the religion as a living, breathing, you know, entity that should change that the Bible should be transliterated, not taking it, not taking literally, where for fundamentalists, the Bible is something to take literally. What it says is what it says. Even if you put it in modern context, and uh, even with all the knowledge that we've gained in a modern age, doesn't matter. It's what was interpreted originally, supposedly, here, what it says exactly here. And that same nature has is used, like that same methodology, whether they realize it or not, is used when interpreted with law. As someone lived, who's lived in families or lived in a family that would interpret law and the Bible or the Bible in that same methodology path, that's where it's coming from. They think everything's connected. The law is intimately connected with the Bible. You must take both literally. Both is ordained by God somehow in some way, even though it's the exact opposite reason why it was even made. Um, and they, they will carry over it. It's all about this strange mythology of um, this Christian Americanism where um, it, they, they go by, my grandma and grandparent did it, so I'm going to do it. I'm going to take things literally. 
what was done originally was perfect, so it should stay the same. No matter how many times reality is proving to me that this way does not work, we're going to stick to it. And that's kind of like their whole philosophy of living. It's why these people cannot even be debated with because there's, there's no root of logic. It's, oh, sorry, a little gassy. Um, there's no logic. It's all rooted in like this reactionary reasoning. I hope that all made sense. Yes. It, I mean, yeah, it just, um, it's frustrating. Yeah, it is. And I, very anti-intellectual. I mean, you know, these, these different forms of like, I mean, I'm not like a, I'm not a constitutional scholar, um, but like, I mean, these judicial interpretations are like, they are forms of, I would say they're forms of intellectualism because like, they're like, there's like originalism, there's like textualism, there's like constructionism, I think. Um, there's a whole bunch of different kinds of like, and like these philosophies are like, they have their own, like, um, their own kind of like, I guess like, uh, oh, I hate to use this word, but their own kind framework. of epistemological kind of like framings. They have their own like ways of knowing and they have developed from like some form of like critical reasoning and like logic and like uh, possibly like maybe like moral philosophy or whatever. It just, it just, just because something is intellectual does not mean, in my opinion, that it is like moral, it is just, it's progressive, obviously. Logical. Um, so it, it, um, yeah, I, I, kind I of, yeah. So my stance, this is going to be from some form of ignorance because I, I didn't take political science classes or whatever. But in my view, when it comes to when it comes to law and stuff, I think it's inappropriate to be married to any specific methodology. Because at the end of the day, I don't give two shits about your framework. I don't care. I don't care about this made up world or lens you've made up for yourself about what's going on. Like the root, like this is such a complex monster society is looking at it through a very specific lens is going to absolutely neglect somebody or something. Sometimes with a mess like this, we've got to just look at all of it and all the details. Because like when you, like, when you choose the path of, uh, I guess, originalism or whatever, you're completely ignoring modern context, modern needs, contemporary issues. It's like, what, at that point, I'm looking at you, I'm like, why the hell are you even here? It's like, you're not helping us. This is an issue. We, the citizens, are bringing this issue, but because of your framework of thought, you can't even hear the words that come out of my mouth because it doesn't exist to you. You well, know, like, it comes I feel from, like with law, it should be more nuanced than that. I mean, it comes from this idea, and I did not, I mean, I took some political science classes before I dropped a major because I will say this for Montevallo's political science department is racist, but I, <laughs> but like, it comes from- You're this not place. wrong. It, it comes from this notion that like their job is like job is not really to like their job is to interpret the constitution that is their job as like supreme court judges that they will have some case that comes forward that is making the argument 
that it is in violation of like the constitution, whatever that may be. And so they look to the constitution and you have to have some kind of framing for how you look at the constitution. Like for example, my framing for like how I look at laws and policy is most likely gonna always be to like some kind of uh, critical race theory, like like uh, theoretical framing. Like that's just how I'm going to look at things. So they, they like you just have to like, like I don't know, how, you took sociology classes and you know about like critical theories. And so I would kind of like place them like on the same plane of people who are using theories to interpret um, different texts. But I will, I mean, I could definitely like agree that maybe they should not be married to one specific like framing. Maybe like- it's dangerous. Maybe originalism is good for like this one particular thing. Maybe textualism is good for this. Maybe strict constructionism is good for this or whatever, have you whatever say. But like that- I mean, yeah, that's any final points. I feel like, oh, sorry. I was going to say any final oh. points because we we definitely got a yes. like uh, <laughs> Judge Jackson. Oh. <laughs> All I got to say is like the, I think the fine line between when we, we should be like so focused on framework is between the idea of research and study versus application. And the, in the end of the day, the difference between a, like a sociologist that's just kind of like curious, trying to research, find information on, they may do research. And yes, sometimes research can have a heavy impact, but it's not direct. Um, it's not a direct impact on the people. But when we are interpreting law and that what you say about that law could be almost engraved in stone and impact the society for years to come, I just think it's, I feel like it's irresponsible if the goal is not to, to sit and look at the Constitution in a way of, does this help the citizens of our country? Does this impede on people's rights? Does this impede on other people's safety? If that's not our focus and your focus is just to try to justify, the because you know good and well that's what the conservatives are doing, they're just trying to find ways to, to justify their ideology, then people become the back burner and that's where exploitation ends up happening if that makes sense. Well, I feel like they would probably say the same about you. They'd be like, what is the point of her ambassadorizing the text of the constitution? When they wrote this, they meant this. My job is not to dictate whether or not like something is like good or bad for society. My job is to say, does this violate the constitution for X, Y, Z? I have no opinion on whether or not how it affects society because that's not my job. My job is literally to be like, yes, this violates the constitution because X, Y, Z, or no, it does not because X, Y, Z. It's still disgusting. <laughs> if you can't let, if you can't let that document have breath to breathe, to be flexible, like if the flexibility is not going to hurt people, but help people, why say no to it? It's kind of like when you go to, I don't know, in my case, when I'd go to my uncle versus my aunt, for something that I really needed help and we did have the funds, the means and possibilities for it, he would just say no for the sake of saying no, the integrity of saying no. And it would drastically change like my experience. That's how it feels. It's like, it leads to a lot of unnecessary no's when there's no reason to not say yes. I just feel like, I mean, I, I don't know. I feel like the Supreme Court is such a like sacred kind of like role in our government. Like, I mean, we can't even hear, we can't even hear their deliberations. 
Like we just have to read. Their, is, we have to just read their like descent or like they're like uh they're like uh written uh statements after they like you know make their decisions and they they vote or whatever. Like it's so it's stupid. Yeah. So because um, we have access to all other forms of our government, why do we not have access to a major form of government that checks and balances the rest? I feel like it's probably because they don't want it to be like like a um they don't want every supreme court case to be a fucking oj simpson case <laughs> that's my drip <laughs> they don't want it to be like that like an actual literal like fucking like media frenzy circus show i guess that makes sense because if not it, it'll just end up because knowing our culture it would just become another form of entertainment and then we'd be having judge judy but supreme court level but like i mean also they probably don't like they we don't need to have like I guess like any outside influence into like like we we don't we don't have a jury there's not, there's not a jury so like um at least I don't think there is and so they I mean they don't need to hear from like you know the public when they're like making their decisions and they're discussing these court cases so it just needs to be them because for whatever reason it's so secretive and blah 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 anyway. Congratulations to Judge Katanji Brown Jackson for her nomination. And we will update you uh, probably whenever uh, she has her um, her uh, confirmation hearings. Certainly. Hearings, actually. All right. So let's get into our next topic of our podcast. So recently, recently as March 7th um, of this year, <laughs> Uh, <laughs> a senior a college student at the University of Virginia, Emma Camp, wrote a guest essay for the New York Times. The essay is called, I came to college eager to debate. I found self-censorship instead. And so she's pretty much talking about literally the link for the article is like www.nytimes.com forward slash today opinion forward slash campus dash speech dash cancel dash culture campus speech cancel culture and so she's and we will we'll link the article in our podcast episode but she's essentially talking about how college students uh, and she she expected to come to college to have these like rigorous like debates right philosophical debates about these ideas and topics and whatnot but she realized that like students are afraid to give their opinions because they're afraid that their professors are going to like uh, snap back at them or like uh, they are afraid that their peers are going to like kind of like troll them on social media or unfriend them or they're just afraid like she's talking she she gives all these like also like kind of like physical you know what we'll, I'll get into like my opinion about the article but like in general she's talking about students now they don't want like they don't want to like conform so they have to like well they they are conforming by self-censoring themselves so they have to like lie or like not be open about how they actually feel because of I guess cancel culture is her argument so I gave Josh the article to read um I am teaching this article in my class uh we're going to talk about this because we're currently on a unit about political polarization and like censorship in the first amendment I've I have them talking about this in context of QAnon so Josh how did you feel about the article so like (sighs) Some main points that I find interesting is like, I find myself saying yes and no to it. Um, 
for, I guess, to relate on a more personal level. Yes, do I feel more tension now when I express my opinion in public? Yeah. Um, the public has gotten a lot more swifter in their reaction to, may I emphasize, problematic opinions. Um, problematic not in the fact that, because it's not the most popular belief, problematic in that it's short-sighted and could harm people. And so it makes me have to pause and really think about what I say uh, so that I'm not, one, believing and thinking a thought that is wrong and could harm people. And so there's a lot of inner stress with that. And she highlights how, like, there's a lot of tension in debate, which there is. But in my personal view, I don't think it has anything to do with the college environment. It has everything to do with our social environment um, because that tension is felt outside of the classroom. And I don't know why we're pretending like college is going to be some safe haven away from the real world when that's where the real world not only meets, but shoves themselves into the same room with you. Well, I don't think, I don't think she's making the argument that college is supposed to be the safe haven. I'm thinking, I think she's making the argument that the college classroom, uh, especially in terms of like seminars, it's supposed to be this place of like, like it's model after like these philosophical conversations like these like Greek philosophers. Like it's, it's the place where we're supposed to be having like academic conversations and like debates and like rhetorical like engagement. We're supposed to be like, this is where it's supposed to happen is in the college classroom. Like you're supposed to be having these debates and these conversations. I think that's the argument mm -hmm. she's making. It's like, well, if I'm not having it in the, in the place that this, where it's supposed to be happening, then like th that's a problem because I'm supposed, college is where it's supposed to happen and it's not happening is what she's arguing. At least that's my interpretation. So I think my, my I guess just the, the grammar opinion is, I do think the environment should feel safe enough for someone to be wrong. I'm not, I'm not going to sit here and entertain the idea that opinion's opinion and it can be separate from right and wrong. No, some opinions are wrong. They're harmful. They can harm people. Yes, it's a neutral statement. That neutral statement has impact. And if that impact is to hurt people, it's fucking wrong. It's like, change your opinion. Or you can keep it and you'll, you'll be a terrible person. That's just the end result of those kind of thoughts. But it needs to be a safe place for people to be wrong to hear the counterpoint and to have space to think and change. And like, I think we are close. I think that people are so focused on how, how society was before the mid of this century or the mid of this early part of the century where we weren't having like super controversial, super important conversations having to always be set down on the table. Like we, we did have women's rights and black rights, blah, blah, blah. But at those times, sadly, those people who were supporting those rights were in a minority and it took time for it to become a majority. But now that more open-minded people are the majority, we're tackling even harder issues. We're opening space for those harder issues. And those harder issues are just not the same as like having a debate on how the economy should be set up or how infrastructure should be set up or whether if the X, Y, and X, Y is ethical. We're talking about like cross-cultural issues such as trans rights, further women's rights, queer rights, um, black people's safety and sense of being able to be a part of the larger community. 
And these things can have a counterpoint, but that counterpoint will always end up harming that group of people. And so the, and if we go by modern ethical standards, those are bad opinions. Those are problematic thoughts. And so they're not going to get garnered the same type of respect on the floor, especially since we are all educated at this point about those, at least enough to know that it's harmful. And it's just, I get confused at what people are asking for when they say, I just want an environment where we can have a diversity of thought. And I'm like, what does that look like? Are you saying that you can come into a room and say that you are pro-Nazi and you're not expecting people who are impacted by that belief to have a visceral reaction to it? Like, I, I will be respectful, but I'm going to debate you down on it, not because the group says I'm right. It's because I know in my heart of hearts, in my experience, because of human ethics, it is wrong. And to even let it have breath to grow in this room would be a crime on its own. I, I hope that's making sense. Like, I, it'd be different if we were talking about smaller issues, but we're not. We're talking about these really big existential issues that can, well, possibly, depending on how many people believe in it, determine the outcome of entire groups. So... I promise this is not me playing devil's advocate because I think that I, I, hate, I hate I hate a devil's advocate, but like Same. I like I oh god hold up I have an ambulance passing but okay never mind. So these very complex issues that we are debating about humanity, like these are not new things that we have been debating. Like we have been talking about. Human the existential existentialism since forever. We have been debating the human condition forever. We've been talking about this forever. Um, and I mean, I guess so. And in, in my eyes, the the article I I had some. I I kind of I guess I felt empathetic to her concern as a student. Um, but then there are some places where. I was also kind of questioning, like, like, well, what do you mean? So, like, here's, like, a quote um, from her article. I went to college to learn from my professors and peers. I welcomed an environment that champions intellectual diversity and rigorous disagreement. Instead, my college experience has been defined by strict ideological conformity. Students of all political persuasions hold back in class discussions and friendly conversations on social media from saying what they saying what we really think even as a liberal who has attended abortion rights demonstrations and written about standing up to racism i sometimes feel afraid to fully speak my mind she talks about an experience where she's in her feminist theory class which i co-taught feminist theory class um last semester um and we definitely had some conversations that i felt like you could what she describes is something that I felt like I could fill in the classroom. So they were talking about. Um, she says in her feminist theory classroom, I said that non-Indian women can criticize uh, this historical practice of ritual suicide by Indian widows. Um, and then uh, she said she thought it was acceptable for academic discussion, but as many of her classrooms, it was objectionable. She says the room felt tense. I saw people shift in their seats. Someone got angry. 
and then everyone seemed to get angry. After, after the professor tried to move the discussion along, I felt uneasy. And I guess like how she describes, uh, she like quotes this like sociologist who says students are afraid of being called out on social media by their peers and that the dominant messages students hear from faculty, administrators and staff are progressive ones. So they feel an implicit pressure to conform to those messages in classroom and campus conversations and debates. And so she just, I feel like I have been in classrooms just because like I've the, just like the, the nature of like what I study has always been conversations that happen to be about things that might be deemed like controversial, like race, gender, class, all of that good stuff. And people say things, people are going to disagree. And there have been times and moments where people have said things in class where I have just kind of like squirmed in my seat because I'm like, oh, that's so wrong. <laughs> like, I'm like, oh, I disagree with you. And you can feel that other people in the classroom also disagree with you. But like, they, like, they have the space to say it. But like, it really does like, I guess like what, what I think is that what she's getting at is that um, it's not that, not that you made this argument, but it's not that these students don't have the like space to like freely say what they feel. I think what they're, what she's describing is this like, um, this like, like cross campus, just like filling in the classroom where asking questions and making arguments uh, affect people, which I'm like, duh, like what you say is going to affect people. And it changes the, the dynamics of the classroom. It's certainly different versus like student versus student in that conversation. It gets even a whole lot trickier when we put in like a student, say, like she talks about like a student who was like disagreeing that Captain Marvel was a feminist film, which I would say none of the Marvel films are feminist because as a feminist, I am anti-capitalist and Marvel films are all about capitalism and militarism. They're all about military propaganda. So there's that. But her teacher was, the teacher was very frustrated by the fact that she had counted her argument saying that Captain Marvel was not a, uh, a feminist film and that people in the classroom seem to be vehemently disagreeing with her. So like, I don't know if it's like, you won't disagree with it, but like, is it how people are disagreeing with you? Like, do you not want your professor to disagree with you? Like, I don't understand. What do you, you say you want to have intellectual diversity, you want there to be disagreement, but when people disagree with you on your points, then somehow this is no longer intellectual diversity, it's no longer disagreement. So I don't I think, understand. So the, the little bit that I could understand, because as a teacher, um, I can have my own stance and views of things, but I think as a teacher, it is our job to be prepared to have our ideas challenged, even if we might clearly have the best answer or understanding of it, because that questioning is what allows for intellectual growth and exploration, and it's not providing a neutral space for the students to do that. I, I do agree that unless it's something that's clearly like unethical I will stand against that um I do think we shouldn't have an emotional reaction to the response we should have an inquiring reactions like okay so can you explain more into why you think it's not um I can understand that like it's it is us as educators jobs 
to have a safe space for everyone to talk their points as long as it's not like Nazi level or uh, very misogynist, you know, some super oppressive, very problematic, very obviously wrong um, and obviously harmful. Because in that scenario, I'm like, it's just it's just a Marvel character. Like, why why would the professor not entertain the idea of having that talent, that intellectual talents with it? Because it's just a piece of literature, you know, film literature. It can be examined from multiple angles. There is no definite to it. (laughs) But at the same time, like you said, people should be like debate was never something that was comfortable. It only and I feel like maybe film has an issue with portraying that because the film always portrays these strong, healthy debates between these strong-willed people with courage and confidence, like people like me who can voice their opinion confidently in a space, whether they're right or wrong. And that's just not how debate naturally is. And anyone who's ever been in a debate space and is definitely like in tune with how other people feel, they know that there's going to naturally be tension and that we just have to navigate that, atten- that tension appropriately. It takes a lot of mental work to do that. <clears throat> Is it called the Socratic method? Isn't that what it's called? The Socratic method of like arguing two points until you come to like a conjoined conclusion. Like uh, that's uh, always going to, it's always going to have this teeter totter of like power balance and walking around things and having to carefully implore more and explain more. <clears throat> I just, I don't know. I've never had a debate or a conversation where it felt comfortable unless it was like someone I was really close to. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's where the root of my confusion is. Is like, this is how it's always been. I don't know about you. Maybe we're, maybe I'm missing something being raised in the 20, like the 2000s, the 21st century where everything was controversial from left to right, left to right war. Um, war, natural disasters, recessions, uh, polarized politics. Like, I don't know a world where debate has ever felt comfortable. Well, see, that's what so I'm saying. I, that's what's so consistent <laughs> about her argument because I, I, I'm i just confused about, like, what, like, I, is it the, like, uncomfortableness? It, like, I guess that's what she's saying is that it's uncomfortable, but, like, I don't understand how, because she, I don't understand, I just don't understand, like, she wants disagreement, but when people disagree, she doesn't like it. And so, I mean, she like she's talked about how like how like students will just like pile on like one student because one student will have like a difference of opinion, which I don't really understand because like, I mean, you can't dictate like how people are going to feel, and if it just so happens that you're the only person who feels that way, you just you just you're just the only person who feels that way. Like, there's not going to always be an equal, like, battleground of, like, thought. Mm-hmm. So, I, I don't know. The whole peer Especially issue. Especially on what it's about. Yeah. The whole peer issue, I don't I don't really get that. And I don't really buy it, to be honest. The professor-student relationship, that one I can kind of buy into just because, like, um, I mean, I can buy into it just because, like, having spent two years in academia, like, and knowing the kind of environment that it is like I can definitely see um like with just how toxic it is I can definitely see like professors 
getting very upset, especially if they're like at like some kind of like research focused institution. If they're like at a big university, an R1, where like the professor's main job is to be, you know, researching. Like they're probably teaching one class a year. That's like literally only like something that they're researching and writing about. So, I mean, if you're saying something that probably might be offensive to their research, they might get frustrated with it. Um, they might consider themselves to be the expert on that topic or whatever. So I could definitely see like academics act toxic to one another all the time. So I'm not going to even imagine that it wouldn't happen between like a professor and a student taking their class. So, so I mean, it's happened, it's happened to me before. So, oh, really? Yeah. Oh, <laughs> yes. So I, I mean, even now, like it, like I'm thinking about my relationship, like, cause I, cause I'm still in coursework when I'm taking my classes and I'm talking to my professors about a topic versus me teaching my students talking about a topic. Well, right now, like I make it very like clear to my students, or at least I hope I make it very clear to my students just in case they listen to this podcast, which I hope they don't. But I do make it very clear that like, <laughs> um, I have never like forwardly really like given like my opinion on these subjects. It's like, I'm just, that's just not my teaching style. My teaching style is to ask them questions and to ask like their views um which might be different from them because they're probably wondering like why won't our professor just like tell us like quote the answer but like there have been times where my students have said something in class and like I have like asked them like you know like for further clarification like what do you mean by that or like so do you mean this or do you mean that or like I've asked them for further and sometimes I, I think to myself when I ask the questions I'm like I hope that doesn't come across as me being like um me kind of tr- trying to like make them conform to like my belief or to like a certain agenda and mm-hmm. then I hope it's seen as okay I hear what you're saying I want you to provide more clarification on like the claim that you're making and so I I mean I have told them that like you don't have like I'm you're not you don't have to agree with my opinion in this class the class is not for you to learn like to like agree with me the class is for you to develop your own kind of understandings of like whatever we're teaching in class but like I have like even as a student I've been in classes where um you know I may have like, disagreed with like some of the things that my professors have said um and there have been times even outside of the classroom where I have felt extremely disrespected by my professors even at the University of Maryland where I felt like they were being extremely condescending because I had a different view so I, I, can, oh believe, I can believe it on the professor level but on a student student level i want to be like girl shut the fuck up (laughs) i really don't think i mean maybe it might be different for this later gen z group but at least for us and we just got out of undergrad this wasn't like years ago no we literally Um, we were this happened during we went to college during the 2016 election yes that was the height of people giving their political (laughs) opinions like we we saw the worst in the world and the, the, it's just the things that she claims i just don't think social pressure is it now am i afraid to be like do i instinctively have a fear of being called out because i said something wrong that i didn't think all the way through yes but at the end of the day if that happens that's on me for not thinking it through i gotta buck it up and get over it i have two routes i could choose the route of humility publicly admit that what i said was wrong pinpoint where I was wrong and where I'm going to work on improving myself or I can double down and look like an idiot like that's just life that so, those are the choices that life always gives us I, <sighs> so there at the end of the article there was a quote that made me think back to an episode that we recorded Josh um Ooh. so I'm going to read the quote 
Um, it's kind of long. So here's here's what she says. She says, our universities cannot change our social interactions, but they can foster appreciation for ideological diversity in academic environments. Universities do more than make public statements supporting free expression. We need a campus culture that prioritizes ideological diversity and strong policies that protect expression in the classroom. Here's specifically what I'm talking about. Universities should refuse to cancel controversial speakers or cave to unreasonable student demands. They should encourage professors to reward intellectual diversity and nonconformism in classroom discussions. And most urgently, they should discard restrictive speech codes and bias response teams that pathologize ideological conflicts. We cannot experience the full benefits of a university education without having our ideas challenged, yet challenged in ways that allow us to grow. I, I hate that. One, uh, fuck her. She's not progressive. You can oh! tell by what she just said. You can tell by what she just said. I'm just going to say it right well, here Josh, right now. Josh, Josh, she, no, no, she no, went to abortion. This, she, went, she went to abortion demonstrations and has written about standing up to racism. Okay, she's a moderate Republican. Sit down. Ah! So this is the thing. And this is what gets me mad. This, these kind of conversations is always so blatantly ignoring exactly what is happening in today's time. We're not talking about 1991, 1991, 1999, Susan. We're talking about the year 2022, where the issues that would be controversial, that would threat, that would quote unquote challenge students, is people who support racist agendas, misogynist agendas, homophobic and queerphobic agendas. These are not, these don't challenge my thoughts. You can't challenge people on the premises of who they are. Are, you're just purely offending them and making them unsafe. Challenging a thought is someone coming up to me and being like, Joshua, I don't think the way you think that how the economy should work is appropriate. And I'm going to explain in, in these steps why what you're saying doesn't work and why mine works better. That is that. That, my friend, is challenging. What is not challenging is coming up to me and telling me that systematic racism doesn't fucking exist. That's not challenging. That's just racism because it's something that is self-evident and proven. You can't challenge my idea that the sky is blue. She, can she we can see can it she fucking blue. Can she challenge? And so I feel like what will happen is that she, and I, I, I can't speak for this girl because I don't know her, but I feel <laughs> like, know her like that. <laughs> and I don't want to. And I, <laughs> <laughs> the same. I feel like she would be like, or I'm not going to say she, I feel like people would be like, well, I'm not going to say that systemic racism does not exist. But what I will do, I will challenge your proofs. I will challenge maybe like the claims that you're making. I'll challenge the evidence. I'll challenge maybe like how you're saying it. I'll challenge like all of these other kind of things that coincide with it. My issue with this is that I feel like, and I, I'm going to go there, I really feel like, and I, I think I said this in our group chat, this really just feels like white people who just want to say the N-word. It, it, that's, it like, that's what it's giving. Because what I don't understand is like, what, because she does not define intellectual diversity. And so I'm just wondering, like, when you say your ideas are challenged, is it not me challenging when you say something that is like, I don't know, give me, 
give me an example, Josh, of something that a student will say in a class where you feel like I, as a professor, should probably like challenge like something that he said that they said that could be deemed like racist or something. Really, just think there's only two genders: there's males and females, and nothing in between. And men can't be women, and women can't be men. Okay, so let's dissect that, and let's let's dissect that because first of all. <laughs> we're we're conflating gender with sex and we need to we're ha- see this this is what okay so what i would do and i would make this i would make it a visual kind of thing i would say oh god i'm such an i'm i'm such an academic i would say let's we've talked about stasis theory so let's explore this through stasis theory and the reason why we are having a disconnect and how we're talking about this issue and maybe why we're disagreeing is because we're on a different point of stasis we need to define, we need to first of all, realize that we're talking about two different definitions. So we cannot adequately have a conversation because our definitions are not aligning. We need to first of all, talk about, if you're talking about one thing and talking about, and we have two different definitions that we can't possibly be having an actual intellectually diverse conversation. Because if I'm talking, if, if I'm talking about, let's say for example, a car, and my definition of a car is the shit that we drive, but Josh says, no, a car is something that I watch TV shows on. How can we, de- how can we debate car wrecks if Josh is out here saying, well, a car is what I watch, you know, Netflix on. So it's like I, speaking two different languages. Yes. It would be impossible. That's how I would probably like, kind of like engage that situation of a student who is saying some shit like that. I, it's like I, we're looking at it from two different frameworks. So we have to agree on one to explore this on. Yes. And I mean, I, how do you feel about her saying universities should refuse to cancel controversial speakers? I'm like, what do you mean by controversial? Are you talking about like UA canceling uh, an actual white nationalist coming to speak? Like, is that your like, what do you, ca- what do you count as controversial? See, I think, I think you know, you, you brought up that point. We don't understand your terminology. We don't understand what you are assuming in this conversation. I think that's where the issue is because I'm coming at it from the point of view of what I've experienced from people who've said things like that. And I'm instantly going to these far right thinkers because those are the people who say this. These, those are look, the people who are having she's problems. She's obviously hiding it for a reason. Like she's obviously being vague for a reason because if I were going yes. to write something like this, I would be very specific in how I'm like defining and writing about this. She's very vague. She doesn't define intellectual diversity. She doesn't, she doesn't define what she means by controversial. She also says the university should not, should ref, uh, should refuse to cave to unreasonable student demands. What does that mean? What, what, what is an unreasonable student demand? That there'll be representation on campus, that students be protected from certain rhetoric that can not only like hurt their feelings, but can quite literally make them feel like they're not safe on that campus. Like, it, it's like you said, she's going out of her way to define these things. And that's why I do not, I do not find this article credible because she does not present the information to make her argument credible. I don't actually know where her stance is. Anyone could say they're pro-abortion. Anyone could say do it. I found her Twitter because it's linked in the article. Oh God, there's an article from a newsletter from the Atlantic someone wrote called Campus Free Speech Can't Survive Cultural Change. When, When it comes to protecting free speech, the first amendment is necessary, but it's not sufficient. All right. What does that well, mean? How would the, the what, for there to know, be anything else would have to be martial law. 
<laughs> all right emma em, the person who wrote this emma camp girl if you just want to say the n-word just say that so we gotta say that you're conservative say right just come out and that's because that's what it, that's what it's given girl it's given strong <laughs> white hood over your grandpa's head i should be like race and my heritage of white supremacy because like it, as long it, as i'm asking about racism in a question then it's not racist and, and the fact that she can't give us specific examples of what is not being allowed to be contested is what makes me feel uncomfortable because i'm assuming you're talking about race gender all these protected minority classes that are still heavily affected by negative policies to this of day. course she's yeah, talking about that because that's hesitant. That's the examples that she gave. She gave nothing but race and gender examples. Like, of course, that's like what she's a, talking about. To go back to that non-Indian, I'm going to say, no, it is not a white woman's place to tell people in a different culture about their cultural practices, whether it's right or wrong. Even if we can frame it as in American ethics, this would be considered wrong and oppressive. But until those people themselves, somewhere in it, acknowledge and believe that it's wrong, it is not my place to tell them that it is. Because that same line of thinking is what led the fucking colonizers to bring their religion over here, murder indigenous people, destroy their cultures and religions, take Africans from their home and destroy their culture and religions, all because they deemed it unethical. It's a subjective area. And I'm like, the fact that she didn't understand, she didn't explain, what like, she didn't explain why she thought it was unethical and she did not explain why the other people thought her views on ethical, she just made those statements. Like it shows to me that she lacks that cultural lens of nuance. And it's like, yeah, it's problematic because you as a white person are imposing your view and using your framework to make a solid judgment on something you know nothing about. To me, if that makes sense. I, I, if I were to give this paper a grade, I would probably give it like a, uh, 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 maybe like a, a I give her an N so she can have that N word and leave. Damn! <laughs> All right, people. In. Now get out. How? Let us know. Let us know. Please let us know how you feel about self-censorship. You know, DM us and all that good stuff. Tag us on, on your Instagram. But we're going to end our podcast here. Uh, remember to give us... <laughs> I'm still weak and I would get that in. Please give us, please follow us on Instagram at Blackbird Podcast. Give us a rating and review. DM us or go to Linktree if you want to become a guest on our podcast. Um, Yeah, and we'll see you next time. Goodbye. Goodbye, Emma Camp. Bye, girl.